Chapter One of the Fortunes of Glencore. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. The Fortunes of Glencore by Charles James Lever. Chapter One A Lonely Landscape. Where that singularly beautiful inlet of the sea known in the west of Ireland as the Killeries, after narrowing to a mere strait, expands into a bay, stands the ruin of the ancient castle of Glencore. With the bold steep sides of Ben Craggan behind, and the broad blue Atlantic in front, the proud keep would seem to have occupied a spot that might have bid defiance to the boldest assailant the estuary itself here seems entirely landlocked and resembles in the wild fantastic outline of the mountains around a norwegian fjord rather than a scene in our own tamer landscape the small village of Lenane, which stands on the galway shore opposite to glencore presents the only trace of habitation in this wild and desolate district for the country around is poor and its soil offers little to repay the task of the husbandman fishing is then the chief if not the sole resource of those who pass their lives in this solitary region and thus in every little creek or inlet of the shore may be seen the stout craft of some hardy venturer and nets and tackle and such like gear lie drying on every rocky eminence we have said that glencore was a ruin but still its vast proportions yet traceable in massive fragments of masonry displayed specimens of various eras of architecture from the rudest tower of the twelfth century to the more ornate style of a later period while artificial embankments and sloped sides of grass showed the remains of what once had been terrace and parterre the successors it might be presumed of fosse and parapet many a tale of cruelty and oppression many a story of suffering and sorrow clung to those old walls for they had formed the home of a haughty and cruel race the last descendant of which died at the close of the past century the castle of glencore with its title had now descended to a distant relation of the house who had repaired and so far restored the old residence as to make it habitable that is to say four bleak and lofty chambers were rudely furnished and about as many smaller ones fitted for servant accommodation but no effort at embellishment not even the commonest attempt at neatness was bestowed on the grounds or the garden and in this state it remained for some five and twenty or thirty years and the tidings reached the little village of Lenane that his lordship was about to return to glencore and fix his residence there such an event was of no small moment in such a locality and many were the speculations as to what might be the consequence of his coming little or indeed nothing was known of lord glencore his only visit to the neighbourhood had occurred many years before and lasted but for a day he had arrived suddenly and taking a boat at the ferry as it was called crossed over to the castle whence he returned at nightfall to depart as hurriedly as he came 
of those who had seen him in this brief visit the accounts were vague and most contradictory some called him handsome and well-built others said he was a dark-looking downcast man with a sickly and forbidding aspect none however could record one single word he had spoken nor even could gossips pretend to say that he gave utterance to any opinion about the place or the people the mode in which the estate was managed gave us little insight into the character of the proprietor if no severity was displayed to the few tenants on the property there was no encouragement given to their efforts at improvement a kind of cold neglect was the only feature discernible and many went so far as to say that if any cared to forget the payment of his rent the chances were it might never be demanded of him the great security against such a venture however lay in the fact that the land was held at a mere nominal rental and few would have risked his tenure by such an experiment it was little to be wondered at that lord glencore was not better known in that secluded spot since even in england his name was scarcely heard of his fortune was very limited and he had no political influence whatever not possessing a seat in the upper house so that as he spent his life abroad he was almost totally forgotten in his own country all that de brett could tell of him was comprised in a few lines recording simply that he was the sixth viscount glencore and lufduna born in the month of february eighteen o blank and married in august eighteen blank to clarissa isabella second daughter of sir guy clifford of witchley baronet by whom he had issue charles cunningham massey born sixth june eighteen blank there closed the notice strange and quaint things are these short biographies with little beyond the barren fact that he had lived and he had died and yet with all the changes of this workaday world with its din and turmoil and gold-seeking and progress men cannot divest themselves of reverence for birth and blood and the veneration of high descent remains an instinct of humanity sneer as men will at heaven-born legislators laugh as you may at the tenth transmitter of a foolish face there is something eminently impressive in the fact of a position acquired by deeds that date back to centuries and preserve inviolate to the successor of him who fought at agincourt or at Cressy, if ever this religion shall be impaired, the fault be with those who have derogated from their great prerogative and forgotten to make illustrious by example what they have inherited illustrious by descent. When the news first reached the neighbourhood that a lord was about to take up his residence in the castle, the most extravagant expectations were conceived of the benefits to arise from such a source the very humblest already speculated on the advantages his wealth was to diffuse and the thousand little channels into which his affluence would be directed the ancient traditions of the place spoke of a time of boundless profusion when troops of mounted followers used to accompany the old barons and when the love itself used to be covered with boats with the armorial bearings of glencore floating proudly from their mastheads there were old men then living who remembered as many as two hundred labourers being daily employed on the grounds and gardens of the castle and the most fabulous stories were told 
of fortunes accumulated by those who were lucky enough to have saved the rich earnings of that golden period Coloured as such speculations were with all the imaginative warmth of the West It was a terrible shock to such sanguine fancies when they beheld a middle-aged sad-looking man arrive in a simple post-chaise accompanied by his son a child of six or seven years of age and a single servant a grim-looking old dragoon corporal who neither invited intimacy nor rewarded it it was not indeed for a long time that they could believe that this was my lord and that this solitary attendant was the whole of that great retinue they had so long been expecting nor indeed could any evidence less strong than mrs mulcahy's of the post office completely satisfy them on the subject the address of certain letters and newspapers to the lord viscount glencore was however a testimony beyond dispute so that nothing remained but to revenge themselves on the unconscious author of their self-deception for the disappointment he gave them this it is true required some ingenuity for they scarcely ever saw him nor could they ascertain a single fact of his habits or mode of life he never crossed the loch as the inlet of the sea about three miles in width was called he as rigidly excluded the peasantry from the grounds of the castle and save an old fisherman who carried his letter-bag to and fro and a few labourers in the spring and autumn none ever invaded the forbidden precincts of course such privacy paid its accustomed penalty and many an explanation of a kind little flattering was circulated to account for so ungenial an existence some alleged that he had committed some heavy crime against the state and was permitted to pass his life there on the condition of perpetual imprisonment others that his wife had deserted him and that in his forlorn condition he had sought out a spot to live and die in unnoticed and unknown a few ascribed his solitude to debt while others were divided in opinion between charges of misanthropy and avarice to either of which accusations his lonely and simple life fully exposed him in time however people grew tired of repeating stories to which no new evidence added any features of interest they lost the zest for a scandal which ceased to astonish and my lord was as much forgotten and his existence as unspoken of as though the old towers had once again become the home of the owl and the jackdaw it was now about eight years since the lord had taken up his abode at the castle when one evening a raw and gusty night of december the little skiff of the fisherman was seen standing in for the shore a sight somewhat uncommon since she always crossed the luff in time for the morning's mail there's another man aboard too said a bystander from the little group that watched the boat as she neared the harbour i think it's mr craggs you're right enough sam it's the corporal i know his cap and the short tail of hair he wears under it what can bring him at this time of night he's going to bespeak a quarter of tim healy's beef maybe said one with a grin of malicious drollery mayhap it's asking us all to spend the christmas he'd be said another whisht or he'll hear you muttered a third and at the same instant the sail came clattering down and the boat glided swiftly past and entered a little natural creek close beneath where they stood who has got a horse and a jaunting cart cried the corporal as he jumped on shore 
I want one for Clifton directly. It's fifteen miles, devil alas, cried one. Fifteen? No, but eighteen. Keeley's bridge is bracked down, and you'll have to go by Gortnamuck. Well, and if he has, can't he take the cut? He can't. Why not? Didn't I go that way last week? Well, and if you did, didn't you lay me a baste? "'Twasn't the cut, did it? It was. Sure I know better. Billy Moore told me. Billy's a liar. Such and such like comments and contradictions were very rapidly exchanged, and already the debate was waxing warm, when Mr. Craggs's authoritative voice interposed with, "'Billy Moore be blowed. I want to know if I can have a car and horse.' "'To be sure. Why not? Who says you can't?' chimed in a chorus." If you go to Clifton under five hours, my name isn't Terry Lynch, said an old man in rabbit-skin breeches. I'll engage, if Barney will give me the blind mare, to drive him there under four. Bother, said the rabbit-skin, in a tone of contempt. But where's the horse? cried the corporal. Aye, that's it, said another. Where's the horse? Is there none to be found in the village? asked Craggs eagerly. Divil a horse, barin an ass. Barney's mare has three staggers the last fortnight, and Mrs. Carl's pony broke his two knees on Tuesday, carrying seaweed up the rocks. But I must go to Clifton. I must be there tonight, said Craggs. It's on foot, then you'll have to do it, said the rabbit skin. Lord Glencore's dangerously ill and needs a doctor, said the corporal, bursting out with a piece of most uncommon communicativeness. Is there none of you will give his horse for such an errand? Ah, monsieur, it's a pity. And such like expressions of compassionate import were muttered on all sides, but no more active movement seemed to flow from the condolence, while in a lower tone were added such expressions as, Sorrow mend him. If he wasn't a nagar, wouldn't he have a horse of his own? It's a droll lord he is to be begging the loan of a baste. Something like a malediction arose to the corporal's lips, but restraining it, and with a voice thick from passion, he said, I'm ready to pay you, to pay you ten times over the worth of your— You needn't curse a horse anyhow, interposed Rabbitskin, while, with a significant glance at his friends around him, he slyly intimated that it would be as well to adjourn the debate. A motion as quickly obeyed as it was mooted— for in less than five minutes Craggs was standing beside the quay, with no other companion than a blind beggar-woman, who, perfectly regardless of his distress, continued energetically to draw attention to her own. "'A little five-penny bit, my lord. The last trifle your honour's glory has in the corner of your pocket that you'll never miss, and that'll sweeten old Molly's tay to-night. There, Kushler. Have pity on the dark, and you may see thy glory.' But Craggs did not wait for the remainder, but, deep in his own thoughts, sauntered down towards the village. Already had the others retreated within their homes, and now all was dark and cheerless along the straggling street. And this is a Christian country. This is the land that people tell you abounds in kindness and good nature, said he, in an accent of sarcastic bitterness. And who'll say the reverse? answered a voice from behind and turning he beheld the little hunchbacked fellow who carried the mail on foot from outerad a distance of sixteen miles over a mountain and who was popularly known as billy the bag 
from the little leather sack which seemed to form part of his attire who'll stand up and tell me it's not a fine country in every sense for natural beauties for antiquities for elegant men and lovely females for quarries of marble and mines of gold Craggs looked contemptuously at the figure who thus declaimed of ireland's wealth and grandeur and in a sneering tone said and with such riches on every side why do you go barefoot why are you in rags my old fellow isn't there poor everywhere if the world was all gold and silver what would be the precious metal tell me that is it because there's a little cripple like myself here that them mountains yonder isn't a copper and iron and cobalt come over with me after i left the bags at the office and i'll show you bits of every one i speak of i'd rather you show me a doctor my worthy fellow said craggs sighing i'm the nearest thing to that same going replied billy i can breathe a vein against any man in the barony i can't say that for any articular congestion of the aortic nerves or for a seropulmonic diathesis do you mind that there isn't as good as me but for the old school of physic the humoral diagnostic touch who can beat me will you come with me across the love to see my lord then said craggs who was glad even of such aid in this emergency and why not when i leave the bags said billy touching the leather sack as he spoke if the corporal was not without his misgivings as to the skill and competence of his companion there was something in the fluent volubility of the little fellow that overawed and impressed him while his words were uttered in a rich mellow voice that gave them a sort of solemn persuasiveness were you always on the road asked the corporal curious to learn some particulars of his history no sir i was twenty things before i took to the bags i was a poor scholar for four years i kept school in eris i was on the ferry in dublin with my fiddle for eighteen months and i was a bear in liverpool for part of a winter a bear exclaimed craggs yes sir it was an italian one pipo Chiassi by name that lost his beast at manchester and persuaded me as i was about the same stature to don the sable and perform in his place after that i took to writing for the papers the skibbereen celt and supported myself very well till it broke but here we are at the office so i'll step in and get my fiddle too if you've no objection the corporal's meditations scarcely were of a kind to reassure him as he thought over the versatile character of his new friend but the case offered no alternative it was billy or nothing since to reach clifton on foot would be the labour of many hours and in the interval his master should be left utterly alone while he was thus musing billy reappeared with a violin under one arm and a much worn quarto under the other this he said touching the volume is the whole art and mystery of physic by one fabricius of aqua pendente and if we don't find a cure for the case down here take my word for it it's among the morba ignota as paracelsus says well come along said craggs impatiently and set off at a speed that notwithstanding billy's habits of foot travel kept him at a sharp trot a few minutes more saw them with canvas spread skimming across the luff towards glencore 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 muttered billy once or twice to himself as the swift boat bounded through the hissing surf 
did you ever hear lady lucy's lament and he struck a few chords with his fingers as he sang i care not for your trellis vine i love the dark woods on the shore nor all the towers along the rhine are dear to me as old glencore the ragged cliff ben Cregan high re-echoing the atlantic roar are mingling with the seagull's cry my welcome back to old glencore and then there's a chorus that's a signal to us to make haste said the corporal pointing to a bright flame which suddenly shot up on the shore of the luff put out an oar to leeward there and keep her up to the wind and billy perceiving his minstrelsy unattended to consoled himself by humming over for his own amusement the remainder of his ballad the wind freshened as the night grew darker and heavy seas repeatedly broke on the bow and swept over the boat in sprayy showers it's that confounded song of yours has got the wind up said craggs angrily stand by the sheet and stop your croning that's an error vulgaris attributing to music marine disasters said billy calmly it arose out of a mistake about one orpheus slack off there cried craggs as a squall struck the boat and laid her almost over billy however had obeyed the mandate promptly and she soon righted and held on her course i wish they'd show the light again on shore muttered the corporal the night is black as pitch keep the top of the mountain a little to windward and you're all right said billy i know the luff well enough i used to come here all hours day and night once spearing salmon and smuggling too added craggs yes sir brandy and tay and pigtail from mr shears in outerad what became of him asked craggs he made a fortune and died and his son married a lady here comes another throw her head up in the wind cried craggs this time the order came too late for the squall struck her with the suddenness of a shot and she canted over till her keel lay out of the water and when she righted it was with the white surf boiling over her she's a good boat then to stand that said billy as he struck a light for his pipe with all the coolness of one perfectly at his ease and craggs from that very moment conceived a favourable opinion of the little hunchback now we're in the smooth water corporal cried billy let her go a little free and obedient to the advice he ran the boat swiftly along till she entered a small creek so sheltered by the highlands that the water within was still as a mountain tarn you never made the passage on a worse night i'll be bound said craggs as he sprang on shore indeed i did then replied billy i remember it was two days before christmas we were blown out to sail in a small boat not more than the half of this and we only made the west side of Aran island after thirty-six hours beating and tacking i wrote an account of it for the tyrolly regenerator commencing with the elemental conflict that with tremendous violence raged ravaged and ruined the adamantine foundations of our western coast on tuesday the twenty-third of december come along come along said craggs with something else to think of and with this admonition very curtly bestowed he stepped out briskly on the path towards glencore End of chapter one